0: This podcast is a production of the Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, a place where real people meet a real God to live in a real world. For more information, visit our website at www.communitycovenant.net.
1: In Lystra, there was sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Laconian language, The gods have come down to us from in heaven form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called him Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing them.
0: Okay. Well, thanks, Deb. Hey, you know it is beautiful springtime in Alaska. Uh, but everyone tells me now, Pastor Todd, it's it's this is not normal. Uh, don't get too used to this, and, and that's what you said last year. And it just keeps getting better and better. I mean, spring came at the end of April last year. This year, it comes in March. Yeah. So pretty soon, we'll think we're living in Ketchikan or Juneau, right? Way things are going right now. Well, it is beautiful. I'm telling you, I love sharing our Alaska experiences with you as we are are learning what it means to live in Alaska. A few weeks ago, I showed you a picture of Lori on the screen with her first official Alaska catch. It was a beautiful, beautiful Dolly Varden. You remember that? And uh, we just got news that we are now uh, eligible for the PFD. Yeah. Uh huh. It's amazing what the church could do with that extra money. Do you know that? Ah, yeah. And if that weren't enough, uh, a few weeks ago we were at Bass Pro Shop. I was exchanging a pair of shoes out and uh, Lori entered a drawing uh, with Ducks Unlimited. Uh, It was Women's Day at Bass and they were having all kinds of workshops on hunting and self-defense and winter survival, all geared towards the ladies. And uh, Lori, she entered the uh, the raffle for for a rifle. And uh, they said they're going to limit it to 250 people. It was $10. I said, you know, I don't mind spending the $10 because, Lori, you are going to win that rifle. Now, I'm not a prophet, okay? I had a 1 in 250 chance of being right. Um, and at 6.30 that night, she gets a phone call from a lady from Ducks Unlimited. And sure enough, she says you are a winner. And Lori goes, "Well, what did I win? A keychain, a camo hat." She goes, "No, you won the grand prize. You won the rifle. When you want to come down and get it." And so, I mean, here it is. I mean, it's it's beautiful. She's got the Dolly Varden. She's got the PFD. Now she's got the rifle. I mean, it's like totally Alaskan. All right. And uh, yesterday, we and half of Eagle River. Uh, went to the Birchwood Range, and she got, for the very first time, to shoot uh, a rifle. She's, she's never owned a rifle or shot a rifle before. And uh, it was a great experience. It's a wonderful little rifle. They call it a varmint gun, okay? I guess there are lots of varmints around in Alaska. And uh, she uh, has a little Bushnell sight on it. It's a, 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 a Savage 93.17 uh, HR smaller, but just just a fun little rifle for her as a first rifle. and So we were shooting the rifle, and what we had to do is we had to sight it in, right? It had a sight on it, a Bushnell scope, and we had to, to kind of take an adjustment and, and sight it in, because when we first took it out of the box and we're shooting it, there's a target we're shooting at, and even though the crosshairs were right in the center of the target, we were noticing that every shot was down to the, down and to the right. Outside of the circle. So we kept working at it. We had to adjust the scope so that once the scope was adjusted, we could be on target and, uh, hit the mark. And as Lori was shooting, there was this man next to us and, uh, he had his binoculars. He was looking. He goes, man, that's good shooting. You've never shot a rifle before. And Lori goes, yep. Yeah. Well, first time. And uh, here's her very first target, okay? And you can see all these points right down here in the beginning, but then as we worked and we sighted in the scope, you notice everything's up here. A little bit, little bit up here, but it's a really tight grouping. Lots of good shots going on there. But you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of, as followers of Jesus that we have to constantly be aware that our, our spiritual scope is adjusted correctly so that when it comes to things like worship, for example, that we're, we're hitting the mark, that we're, we're right on target. And sometimes we think we can be, in reality, maybe we're low and to the right, okay? And so we need an adjustment, uh, we need to dial in our spiritual sight, and so we know that we're hitting the mark, that we're aiming where we should be, and that we're hitting the target. And that's especially true when it comes to worship, and it's especially true when it comes to identifying God as our object of worship. And that's a, a real lesson in our passage today. Now you, you, you might recall last week, as Paul and, and Barnabas were there in uh, Poseidon, Pisidian Antioch, uh, they were sharing uh, the gospel message in the synagogue, and there were those who responded, there were those who didn't, and uh, the crowd got hostile, and, and it forced them out of the town. And uh, this week, as we look in chapter 14, they travel some 93 miles okay, further into Galatia, And that's the province that they're in. And as they travel about 90 miles or so southeast, they come to a town called Iconium. And in Iconium, they go to the synagogue, as was the custom, and they begin to share. And there were a number of Jews and Greeks who believed, yet the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the crowd in the town. And again, as was the case in Pisidian Antioch, they were run out of town. So... They head now to uh, Lystra and to Derby and to Iconium. And, and while they're there, they uh, are very, very relevant in their presentation of the gospel, especially as it comes uh, to being there in Lystra. Now, you're going to notice something. It's a pattern of the Apostle Paul. In Acts 13.6, he argues for the lordship of Jesus Christ in the synagogue using what? The Scripture. And he's arguing from the prophets and from the Old Testament. And uh, that makes sense because there's a synagogue there. There's a Jewish crowd there. There are god fears who are worshiping there. And they're familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. And so that's how he argues. But here in chapter 14 in our passage, he's going to argue from nature. In other words, from general revelation. Because this particular town in Galatia didn't have a synagogue. Now, there were some Jews there, but it was a very small population. Most of the people there were Gentiles. They were pagans who would have worshipped from a pantheon of Roman and Greek gods. Okay? So would it have made sense for, for Paul uh, to argue the case for the gospel uh, from the Scripture, like he would in a synagogue? Well, no, of course not, because they weren't familiar with Scripture. It didn't mean anything to them. And so he begins to speak and he begins to argue from what they do understand. Now, in our passage, it begins with Paul seeing a man and there's a, a miraculous healing. That's called an attesting miracle. And we see that uh, throughout the New Testament and the book of Acts in particular, that there's a miracle that takes place. People want to know, well, how can this happen? And then someone gives the message to um to verify the truth of the claim they're to make about the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what's happening here. But as they perform the miracle, there is a high priest uh, from the temple of Zeus, and he calls all the people to gather bulls, and and they're going to sacrifice, and they're going to worship. And who are they going to worship? They're going to worship Paul and Barnabas. And here's why. In this particular area of Galatia, again, they, they worshiped from a pantheon of gods. But the primary god they worshiped was Zeus. He was believed to be the father of the gods, all right? And oftentimes, one of the, the major gods was associated with another or supporting god. In this case, Hermes. And Hermes was a patron saint of orators or of oration. And so what's going on here is they're seeing Paul, who does the healing with Barnabas, and they're thinking to themselves, this must be Zeus and Hermes, who have come down from the heavens to the earth. Now, why would they think that? Well, there was a legend that in that region of Galatia, that actually Zeus And Hermes did come down, and they went from house to house looking for someone to welcome them and to feed them. But they went to a thousand houses, and they were denied. Yet there was one house where they were welcomed in by a couple. And the legend has it, they were welcomed in, and that couple's house became a shrine. And they had an unlimited source of food that was given to them by the gods. And the thousand other households that denied them and didn't welcome them, well, Zeus and Hermes destroyed them. And so here they are, they're thinking back to their frame of reference. They're seeing this miraculous healing that takes place in the beginning of our passage. And they're saying, we're not going to make the same mistake that our relatives made before us. If this is Zeus and Hermes, we're going to worship them. And we're going to give them the adulation, the adoration that, that they're deserving. And so as the, the priest there, he begins to, to call the people to, to provide the sacrifice in honor of Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas, they're hearing them speak in the Lyconian language. And they're trying to figure out what they're saying. They don't understand it, but soon they understand the fact that they're gathering animals for sacrifice. And they're saying, wait a minute, stop, don't do that. Don't do that. And they begin to tear at their clothes, which is a Jewish custom that whenever blasphemy is spoken, or there's an outward expression of idolatry or something blasphemous, that a righteous Jew would would tear at their clothing as a response to that. And that's exactly what's going on here. Now, the key verse here uh, in the passage this morning is verse 15. It says, Friends, why are you doing this? We, too, are only humans like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things... To the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. Now, there it is. He's beginning to argue from general revelation. To tell them about this God is the true God, the one God. And he continues. In the past, he let all the nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. But then it goes on to say, even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. And what ends up happening are, there are some disgruntled Jewish worshipers who went from Pisidian Antioch to Iconium, and now they're here in Lystra or Lystra, And they're stirring up the crowd against Paul and Barnabas again. And literally, as you read on in this passage, they stone Paul and drag his body out to the outskirts of the city. And it's interesting, later on, Paul's going to write about this in 2 Corinthians 11.25, where he talks about this stoning, about actually what happened to him. But that's the context of our passage today. Paul and Barnabas... Are aghast that they're gonna, they're gonna worship them rather than the God that they represent. Really, it calls our attention and it calls us to ask ourselves, who are we worshiping? You know, there's a, there's a tendency for us to look back at, in antiquity and we see, uh, these pagan people and they have these primitive forms of worship. And you know, they literally had a God that they ascribed to everything rain and, and to the crops and to fertility and to power and to military strength and on and on and on and on it goes. And they gave these gods names and they worshiped them. And we look at that and we say, well, gosh, isn't that ridiculous? <clears throat> well, we may not give them names like Zeus and Hermes, but we were created to worship And we have this desire and this impulse that God created us with to worship and to worship Him. And yet, if we're not focused, if our our spiritual scope is not zeroed in, we can find ourselves missing the mark. We can find ourselves falling to a very subtle forms of idolatry. Things that were created whether they be creatures or part of the creation, we worship rather than the creator. And that's what Paul and Barnabas are are trying to say here. They're saying, listen, don't worship the created things. Don't worship the creature. Worship the one who created them. Now, Timothy Keller is a wonderful author and pastor. And he's written a book called counterfeit gods, the empty promises of money, sex, and power, and the only hope that matters. If you want a relevant and interesting study on the topic of idolatry in our culture and our day, Pastor Keller hits the mark. I highly recommend him and this book to you. Let me tell you what he says when it comes to idolatry. According to Pastor Keller, An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Uh, He goes on, and, and this is what he says. He says that there is particular kinds of brokenness and damage called caused by idolatry. When we miss the mark. When we are subtly, but really off target, worshiping the wrong things. According to, to Tim Keller, he says, if, if you center your life and identity on your spouse or your partner, you'll be emotionally dependent, jealous, and controlling. The other person's problems will be overwhelming to you. If you center your life and identity on your family and children, you will try to live your life through children until they re, until they resent you or have no self of their own. At worst, you may abuse them when they displease you. If you center your life and identity on your work and career, you'll be a driven workaholic and a boring, shallow person. At worst, you will lose family and friends, and if your career goes poorly, develop deep depression. If you center your life and identity on money and possessions, you'll be eaten up by worry or jealousy about money. You'll be willing to do unethical things or maintain your lifestyle, to maintain your lifestyle, which will eventually blow up your life. If you center your life and identity on pleasure, gratification, and comfort, you'll find yourself getting addicted to something. You'll become chained to the escape strategies by which you avoid the hardness of life. If you center your life and identity on relationships and approval, you'll be constantly overly hurt by criticism and thus always losing friends. You'll fear confronting others and therefore will be a useless friend. If you center your life and identity on a noble cause, you will divide the world into good and bad and demonize your opponents. Ironically, you will be controlled by your enemies. Without them, you'll have no purpose. And then finally, he makes this observation. If you center your life and identity on religion and morality, you will, if you're living up to your moral standards, become proud, self-righteous, and cruel. If you don't live up to your moral standards, your guilt will be utterly devastating. Each of these is a very subtle form of idolatry. Here's my definition. Idolatry is giving to what has been created the gratitude, adoration, and dedication that only God, the Creator, deserves. Romans 1.25 says this. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. He, he's talking about sinful man and the heart of sinful man that turned away from God and, and worshiped that created things rather than the one who created them. In Isaiah 42.8 it reads, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. Here's the point. Whatever we worship, Controls our lives. Whatever the object of our worship is. Controls our lives. If our object of worship is not God. Then whatever the God substitute is in our life. Will control it. In Luke 4. Verses 5 through 8. When the devil was tempting Jesus in the wilderness. We read this. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him all in an instant, all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to if, what? You worship me. It will all be yours. And so what was the devil trying to do? He was trying to tempt Jesus to, with all the kingdoms of the world, with all the things of the world, saying, I'll give you all these things if you but will worship me. He was trying to get Jesus to do what? Be an idolater. And Jesus answers, It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. David Foster Wallace is an American writer and an intellectual. And he was the height of his career before he took his own life in 2008. Now, ironically, before his death, he gave a very famous commencement address. And this is what he said to the graduating class. He says, everybody worships something. The only choice we get is what to worship And pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap your real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally bury you. Worship power, and you'll feel weak and afraid. And you'll need even more power over others to keep fear at bay. Worship your intellect, well, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on, and so on, and so on. Whatever we worship controls our lives. But whatever controls our lives, really, whatever controls our lives is our Lord. In Matthew six, twenty-four, in the Sermon on the Mount, using this, making this point about money. Jesus says this, No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other, but you cannot serve both God and money. And I would expand that to say, uh, you cannot serve God and anything else. God wants your total devotion. He wants to be the object of your adoration and worship. Listen to this quote. Mark Twain. Very interesting. Now in the the Westminster Confession, the question is asked, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, to what? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But commenting on the nature of man and the chief end of man. This is what Mark Twain wrote. What is the chief end of man? To get rich. In what way? Dishonestly if we can. Honestly if we must. Who is God? The one and only true? Money is God. Gold and greenbacks and stock. Father, son and ghosts of the same. Three persons in one. These are the true and only God, mighty and supreme. Now, I don't think that that's what he believed, but I was, I think that he was commenting on American culture, even back then at that time. Whatever controls us is our Lord. And then finally, we seek to control our lives. We seek to control our lives. We seek to be the god of our own lives by making God in our own image. You familiar with a theologian named Scott McKnight? He teaches at North Park Seminary. He's a covenant theologian, and uh, he gives a test every year to his incoming group of college students. The test begins with a series of questions about what students think Jesus is like. Is he moody? Does he get nervous? Is he the life of a party or an introvert? There are 24 questions that are followed by a second set with slightly altered language in which students answer the same questions about their own personalities. Okay, The first set is about Jesus, what they imagine Jesus to be. The second set is about what they imagine or what they understand their own personalities to be. Now, McKnight is not the only one who's administered this exam. It's been field-tested by other professionals as well. But the results are remarkably consistent. Everyone thinks Jesus is just like them. McKnight added, The test results also suggest that, even though we like to think we're becoming more like Jesus, the reverse is probably more the case. We try to make Jesus like ourselves. McKnight's personality questionnaire confirms what the French philosopher Voltaire said three centuries ago. If God has made us in his image, then we have returned him the favor. Okay, And so our tendency is to control our own lives by making God in our image, rather than being the ones who were created in his. In the Old Testament... In Psalms one fifteen verses two through eight, it says this: Why do the nations say, "Where is their God?" Or God is in heaven; He does what He pleases. He does whatever pleases Him. But their idols are silver and gold, made by human human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see, they have ears but cannot hear noises excuse me, they have, they have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust them. Well, I tell you the story about a man who changed his name. In 2006, a New York judge allowed Jose Espinal to legally change his name to Jesus Christ. Following the decision, Espinal said he was happy and grateful that the judge approved the change. He also said that he was moved to seek the name change about a year prior to the court decision. The reason? Well, when it dawned on me, he said, I realized that I am the person that is that name. Clearly, Espinall was trying to create God in his own image. You know the truth is, we're all a little bit like him. We're just more subtle. We grab at the title of Lord every time we reclaim the management and control of of our lives scott hafman in his book the god of promise in the life of faith writes these words whom do i thank when things go well to whom do i look when things go badly what is my source of security where do i gain my sense of worth what is it i'm striving to achieve and why The answers to these questions or questions like these will help determine whether we are honoring God as God or whether you and I are idolaters. Whatever that means, we're praying, whether we're praying to a stone image as as in the prophet Isaiah's day, drooling with envy over the car in our neighbor's driveway or latching on to the latest self-help strategy. Whatever it is, if the object of our worship, our adoration, our dedication, our service isn't God, then we have fallen into a very subtle but very dangerous form of idolatry. Let's pray. Father, our desire is to adjust the spiritual sights of our heart. We want to be on target when it comes to worship. Lord, we want to worship you in spirit and in truth. And Lord, we want to declare this morning that you and you alone are worthy of our praise. And yet, Lord, we live in a world in which we are called away from that target, from you. There are so many temptations, so many opportunities to to stray into very subtle forms of, of idolatry. Lord, whether we're worshiping relationships or work or material things or, Lord, even ourselves. Lord, this morning we want to confess that. We want to turn away from that. And we want to zero in, Lord, to the heart of worship, and that's you. We want to celebrate you and the gift of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we want to worship you and you alone. Father, we ask this morning, That if our lives need adjustment, if our our spiritual sight needs to to be sighted in, Father, would your Holy Spirit just convict us of that and then encourage us in what it is we need to surrender, what it is we need to confess and, and to turn away from, that we might turn and look to you, the true God, the one, the one and only who is worthy. Of our praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.